I think for the purposes of what we're doing here, I would like you to state your name and introduce yourself in any way that you feel is appropriate given the context. Okay. Well, my name is Brad Jaffe. I would call myself a, a friend of the podcast. Um, I've been listening since, you know, I think before, Leo, you even put the first one out and uh, I've listened to everyone. I like to consider myself sort of a shadow producer of mm-hmm. the podcast. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's fair. Maybe it's a bit of arrogance on my part, but I care deeply about the show. And, you know, I think I, I talk to you more than I talk to any other, you know, friend or family member on the planet. Okay, given all that, are <clears> you a professional musician or music business professional? Definitely not. Although I aspire uh, to be one someday. I care deeply about the music, but I'm neither professional um, or even good enough to be considered professional. Well, that's your first mistake. You don't have to be good to be a professional. But I think that... The reason it's important to note that you are not a professional is because you, to me, represent that kind of deep musical fan. Like, you know as much or more music than I do. You're a deep diver into stuff. The reason I'm so deep in the music is because this is the way I was brought up. I brought up in Toledo, Ohio. My grandfather, Harold Jaffe, founded the Toledo Jazz Society. My dad is the president. And, you know, as kids, we wouldn't watch sports events together. We would go to see music, mostly jazz. Um, so we would go to New Orleans for a jazz festival or, you know, for an important event. We would go to Detroit and see a great show for my dad's birthday. And that was how we were raised. So music has always been more important to me than just about anything else. And that's ultimately why I'm talking to you today, because I want to talk to you about one particular musical event that you witnessed. I want you to wind it all the way back to August of 1996. So how old was I in 1996? 19 years old? Uh, That's a long time ago. Memories fading and, you know, who knows what kinds of things I was doing back then that would fade my memory further. But what I do recall is that was an exciting summer because we were, I say we, it was, you know, a group of friends traveling around to see as many fish shows as we possibly could. And I was also, you know, at the time, just like you, a student at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Modesky Martin Wood, who I'd never seen before, was playing at the Memorial Union Terrace the night before Fish, the band that we'd been following around, was playing at Alpine Valley, which is, you know, a short drive from Madison. And I think there were a couple days off for Fish. I think they were playing at Red Rocks or something. And from what I understood, there were people promoting Modesky Martin Wood in Madison on this night off. And everyone had built this anticipation that Trey Anastasio, the guitarist from Fish, was going to be playing with Modesky Martin Wood in Madison. Why do you think that anticipation or that assumption was there? What was it about Modesky Martin Wood that would be attractive to a fish audience at that time? Well, look, this was, you know, the early days of what became known as the jam band scene, I guess. And Modesky had been played pretty regularly between sets and before fish shows. So people were aware of them. It was turned on to me by another fish head friend. And I was blown away. And, you know, similar structure. There's no vocals in a Medeski show, 
but the structure was often similar. You'd have a certain groove, and then it would just disappear into this improvisational land. You'd never know what you could get. And you know, fish heads like to dance. And if there's one thing that I can tell you about a Medeski show, is that it is all groove. Yeah, there are moments of sort of avant-garde strangeness, but it's only to get you to the point where you can really. Feel that groove again. Tension and release. Tension and release. And I don't know of a band that does it better than Medeski Market would. Yeah. Now you and I were talking about this show recently, and you were able to go back into the Fish archives and identify the day that this happened. It's true. Do you remember what day it was? August 9th, nineteen ninety-six. And you can find, you can actually find a clip of it on YouTube. They play at least one song. I think you might be able to see the outline, the silhouette of my head in the front row, because I was, my knees were on the stage.、Um, and you know, the Memorial Union Terrace was a place that I would go all the time. Yeah, I'm sure you did as well. Never have there been more people on that Union Terrace、yeah. than there were that that night. The reason I wanted to talk to you about this particular experience is because when I talked to John Medeski, he pinpointed that concert as the moment that he and the band kind of came into contact with what would become the jam band scene. It was on the Memorial Union Terrace at the University of Wisconsin. That was not really what they were thinking about. I mean, jam bands didn't exist, as you say. Uh, at that point, they were they were there on the ground floor. It's, it's just interesting that they then have had to kind of confront and negotiate and embrace this audience that they didn't necessarily even know could belong to them or would ever be a part of their life.、Mm. Look, I, I have no idea what it's like to be a musician and to expect a certain type of audience or to create a type of music that you hope a certain audience will be into. But what I know is that. The jam band audience—I mean, if you can even call it that—is a group of people who love to feel totally engrossed in the present moment. Yeah, you know, witnessing something that will never be done in the same way again, and that's what's so exciting and the authenticity of that and the opportunity to see players of that capability、mm-hmm. so connected and so connected to the audience, and and that's what happens. The community together creates this moment,、mm-hmm. and it's something that. Hopefully, the members of the band enjoy as much as the audience. To be honest, it, it makes me a little bit sad to think that the band might not appreciate that feeling as much as the audience might. Look, I, I don't mean to put words in anybody's mouth. I have not talked to、mm. any of these musicians who say that they don't appreciate it. What I do understand is that it wasn't something that one would aspire to because, it, first of all, because it didn't exist. You know what I mean? Like the whole fish、yes. phenomenon that I think kind of grew out of the Grateful Dead. And expanded and started to absorb other music. I mean, in a way, it probably expanded the sort of the musical palette of a lot of people. That Fish then gave people a way into the avant-garde, absolutely, which was not something that you would have expected if you were to trace it back to the Dead. That suddenly there's、right. there's going to be all these like kids freaking out about some avant-garde musicians. That's true. But I also think that what you describe is a relationship between the musicians and the fans that doesn't always happen. In improvised music, the audience takes on its own identity. There's there's kind of a culture, and there there's codes, and and there's engagement. Absolutely, and I think that's what's so compelling about it, and why people come keep coming back, and why I think that you don't need to have a massive audience 
to be a wildly successful musician in that genre because people keep coming back because they know every time is going to be different. You want to tell the people about the places they can go, the links and all that stuff? Do you know them off the top of your head? Well, sure. I mean, you can obviously go to the third-story.com is the place to go. .com, third-story.com is the place to go. You can obviously check out all the socials. Check out the socials. By the way, when you're at third-story.com and you're checking out the archive, what are some episodes that might be interesting to somebody who's listening to a John Modeski conversation? Sure. Well, obviously, the Billy Martin one is one that definitely need to go to. Yeah. And there are a number of other people that you've spoken with, I think, who sort of are jam band adjacent. Mm -hmm. Who would some of those people be? Charlie Hunter, for example. Of course. He's one of my all-time favorites. I think I embarrassed myself with him once, too. Who hasn't embarrassed themselves at least once with Charlie Hunter? And I think you'd also be remiss not to mention some of the upcoming dates that you're playing because um, I like when you do that. I want people to come see you play, too. Uh, I'll be at Crooners in Minneapolis on August 19th and 20th. I'll be in Madison on August 23rd, then in Atlanta, Georgia on the 25th of August at the Atlanta History Center, and then Chicago Green Mill, which is a great venue. And by the way, the weekend before I play there, Charlie Hunter with Kurt Elling, Super Blue, are Amazing. playing there. All my gigs are going to be with my dad. So, oh, there's one other thing, patreon.com mm. mm, slash yes. third story podcast. And finally, I'm in a new partnership, relatively new partnership with WBGO Studios. WBGO.org slash studios is where you go to check out all their excellent content. Without further ado, here's me talking to John Modeski. He was in Finland in a hotel room. So he was like jet lagged and kind of in road mode. And I had just come back from the emergency room from urgent care because I had cut my foot open that morning. And... I got a bunch of stitches in it, and I was kind of disheveled and discombobulated, and I decided that I would still go ahead and do the interview. So between his jet lag and my headspace having just come back from the emergency room, it was quite a way to start a conversation. John Modeski, I am so excited to talk to you, man. It's a long time coming for me, and... I hope you don't mind me sharing this with you, but I want to tell you about what happened to me this morning because I think it might actually be significant to our conversation. I woke up this morning and I had this grand plan that I was going to spend the morning just digging you and listening to records and thinking about you and watching videos and just go down a Medeski rabbit hole before we talk. And um, and the f bad idea. Well, the the, the fates uh, agree <laughs> agreed with you, man, because. Instead, I fell off a chair, cut open my toe, and got six stitches in my toe this morning, and um, hobbled back home from the urgent care thinking, man, I wonder if I should reschedule this conversation or not. But really what I thought about was how, as I understand it, you are the expert in channeling physical adversity into creativity, that that's been a part of your life going all the way back. I don't know if I'm an expert. I've done it a lot. <laughs> I guess I can say it. I'm old enough that, you know, I'm of the, I'm of the show must go on era, you know, no matter what the show must go on. So yeah, I've, I have played gigs, passing kidney stones many times. Had like my fingers smashed my finger in a window 
one time in DC and then drove to Chicago and had to play that night. And my finger was blown up. Tip of my finger was just, you know, on the nail. I didn't get it drained early, quick enough. By the time I got to Chicago, it was too late to get it drained. And that was really a pain. Yeah, I've done all I've cut I've cut a piece of my finger off and then, you know, flown out the next morning. <laughs> Welcome to the club. Well, thank you, man. <laughs> what do you think that is, that show must go on thing? Like, wh- why do that to yourself? It's some stupid thing that, like, I don't know. Showbiz people created a long time ago. But also, I don't know. It's like, I mean, part of it is like, yeah, when you're on the road, there's a thing in motion and there's a lot of other people depending on you doing it. There's that aspect of it. That's like more the, the sort of business side of it is like the people that bought tickets. You, know, you can't cancel it. You know, so unless it's really, unless you're really in capable of performing or then I, yeah, I mean, you just do it because there's a lot of, you know, it's like, it's, you put this thing in motion a while back and this is just how it's turning out. It's how I see it. And, um, you know, oftentimes for me, like any kind of weird thing that might be, anything that might be going on, I feel after playing the show, I feel better. So there's that aspect of it too. The music's kind of good for all of that. I don't know. I'm just not so precious about whatever, <laughs> my state for any gig, you know, because it's the music that's the most important thing. And I know that getting in there in whatever state you're in, you, you lose, you're going to lose yourself in the music. So for me, it's great. You know, it's always, there's only one time I ever got knocked down and couldn't, I had to cancel, we had to cancel a tour in Europe when I had this cluster hitting thing that came on. But other than that, like I've, yeah, I managed to not really ever cancel a gig for anything. Right. I mean, it sounds like it's been with you enough that it it's not necessarily out of the ordinary for you to be dealing with something. I read an interview, you talked about kidney stones. I read an interview with you where you talked about Bruce Lundvall coming down to hear Medeski Martin and Wood play, and you got signed based on a concert that he saw while you were dealing with a kidney stone. Yeah, that was a double-edged whammy because it was the first time MMW was playing in New Orleans, which was very exciting for us. But we were playing at this at the, <laughs> the club that was, at, was then Margaritaville. Mm-hmm. The most un-New Orleans, although Jimmy Buffett has a serious New Orleans history, not to take away from that, but it's definitely more of a touristy, like, you know, it was not like a classic New Orleans club. It was a newer tourist-geared chain club in New Orleans. So it was that, that was weird. And then I'm passing a kidney stone, and that was the night Bruce Lundball decided to come down and see the band live. So, yeah, I just crawled out of the camper. <laughs> Got on stage, played the gig, and then went back into the camp. I didn't even really get to go. Um, I just said hello to him and explained the situation. Went and um, went back and just dealt on my dealt in my own. But um, yeah, and he yeah he decided he wanted to sign us. So yeah, that's kind of that's true. Do you think that maybe dealing with affliction has contributed? I mean, I understand you say you feel better sometimes when you're done playing, or it goes away when you're playing. Is it possible that it has actually? contributed to the music like informed your approach in some way well okay i'll tell you my theory on that but i think you know i I feel better after because i mean you know i mean really for me always knowing it in so many words or not music is you know a healing force on every level or on any level i should say depending on what you need you know and um, so that's just a fact. But in terms of when it comes to playing under, you know, under some kind of duress or with something that might be distracting, I feel for me that like in some ways, 
having something like going on with a, it creates this mild bit of distraction that in turn requires a certain kind of inner focus probably gets me out of the way of the music because mm-hmm. when you're feeling good and you're all proud of yourself and all you know you're you're you know my experience has been you know oh this feels great yeah it's so much fun yeah you know what i'm really like really getting off of what's happening when i go back and listen to it it's not as good as i thought it was and sometimes the the the, the place where i was like the most eh, just overly critical or not feeling good or even not aware of what was going on is sometimes there's some st- stuff i didn't even know happened i'm like blown away by how it came out so i think in a way having something like that can actually be distracting in a way that gets you out of the way of the music just flowing out mm-hmm. you know out of your head yeah, I mean, it, gets, it forces you to do it. You know, the, just the, the physical the pain distraction. Like, all you can do is just get it done. So in a lot of ways, you just let the music, especially, you know, this is playing, I mean, we play improvised music. I mean, if you're trying to play some complicated, pre-written piece of music or sight reads, you know, some kind of, cla- you know, complicated classical piece, it's going to be hard to do that if you're in pain. But when you're playing something you really know or you're improvising, you know, sort of channeling music, uh or you're playing like, you know, a piece that you're very familiar with so that you don't have to think about it. Then that, I, in a way, like, I feel like, you know, my experience has been that those circumstances get me out of the way mm-hmm. of just letting it go, let it flow, you know? So I'm not like, I'm not having too much fun or, you know, I'm not, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Or you're maybe not even aware. I mean, that's what you describe as a kind of a, a space where you go to where you're aware, you're present, but you're, you may not even be aware of how you got there or what you did because you're, you're, yeah. Uh, as soon as you, as soon as you like are like checking out what you're doing, I think it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, skateboarding or surfing. I've used that analogy before. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I mean, as soon as you become too self-aware, you fall over, hmm. you know, it's that fine line. It's that zone. It's that balance of like, you know, being in it, part of it. And, you know, not that you can't enjoy it, but usually you enjoy it after, <laughs> you know, after that like ridiculous ski run, you know, life periling ski run that you get. To, then at the end, you're like, yeah, that was great. You know, but you got, there's a certain level of being in it focused and like riding the wave. And I think that's kind of true for the music too. You know, you gotta be right. You know, you gotta, you gotta ride that wave. And part of that, is, and I guess that's what I mean by getting out of the way where you're not too present in terms of what your own experience is, you know, Mm-hmm. enjoying not enjoying whatever it is you know it's like to just really just be in the vibration of the music and the vibration of what is happening mm-hmm. you know and you know that's what you, i think you have to do that especially if you're going to play and, and improvise music you need to be in the vibration of the room you know of the other people you know you need to be creating um a space that invites the audience in then you need to be in the music reacting to what each musician is doing, you know, and listening to it and making choices that every millisecond, you know, what to do next. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be in the city that you're in and the country that you're in and the continent and the planet. You know, it's like, it's just like, in some way you've got to be that, you got to be present in that way. Yeah. And the historical moment, you know, when Trump was elected, I remember talking to a bunch of musicians who said that they felt somehow now that they understood that, you know, um, music really could be used as a form of protest or that music has this function that they never really understood before. And now during COVID, I hear musicians saying, well, music can also be a form of healing in very real terms. I mean, you described it as healing earlier when I was asking you about playing through injury and all that kind of stuff. But like, 
you know, I wonder if there is a, if it's a more precise version of that where you say, yeah, we need music to heal ourselves in some way. Well, we always do. You know, I think trauma happens to people all the time. <laughs> you know, maybe this is a, this is definitely much more of a collective mm-hmm. thing, but I mean, it's always there. Music is to me, and just from my perspective, and for me, like music just seems to be this way of, yeah, I guess, you know, you could use, I mean, healing, uh, it's just, I mean, yeah, I mean, it is that unquestionably, but you know, there's so many ways that healing, there's so many forms that come in. It's like music can be a release. Mm-hmm. It can be soothing. You know, it can be um, just to, to take you out of your intellectual mind. You know, it's like, it's like, it's funny. It's like, it's, it's, it's so different for so many different people. And some people want to hear that song. They know they've heard a million times because that gives them a certain kind of comfort. Some people want to hear something that is like nothing they've ever heard before because that takes them out of their analytical mind. Mm-hmm. gives them so many different ways to get to that music. The space that music brings you to is like there's infinite ways that it can get you there. And I think it's different for everybody or different for different groups of people. And, you know, it's just good. But I do think it is a good way to um, clean up and focus, you know, some of this, uh, what has happened. I mean, you know, music is like, it's a language. It's, our, it's a language. And, Quite, I will say, it is our best language. Mm-hmm. Math is okay, the spoken word is okay, but music is better. <laughs> it does something that nothing else does. It, it, the sound vibration it moves through you. You know, mathematics explains things. Our intellect explains, mm-hmm. you know, it, and actually, it limits things. Music does not limit things. Music expounds on things. You know, art in general does. You know, and. Um, because it takes it in the creative realm from which all things come <laughs> from. Mm. So it's like, it just, yeah, it can do so much. And I'm sort of more and more of the mind that it's like, if you let it, you know, it's really on the listener to decide how they want to experience music. Mm-hmm. We can experience any sound. It does, you know, it could be a sound, you know, a horrifying sound or an, or an annoying sound can be a way to enter the moment, you know, and, you know, it doesn't have to, you know, you can choose how, how you experience them, you know, whether it's the sounds of the city, the sounds of nature, it's a lot easier to, you know, with the sounds of nature or some soothing instrument to find, <laughs> to find it soothing or to find that place of, um, you know, relaxing into the now, but really any sound can do that if you let it. And um, so it's kind of on the listener really to decide what, music can do for them or not. Have you had experiences of feeling soothed or somehow um, reassured by hearing sounds or music that other people might consider to be stressful or disruptive? I've had major like events, not major events, but you know, you know, the sort of minor major experiences that, you know, just nailed that in even more. Like I just remember living in Boston and I live close to the the subway that they call the T, you know, and it was an above ground T and Early in the morning, I was sleeping and I was dreaming of Elvin Jones playing a drum solo. I could see him here. And as I woke up, it was the sound, basically it was the sound of the subway going by. It was what he was playing. And I was just like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, like... 
so why not you know if you, if you just get inside any sound so i get that from then on i just get when i hear the subway i can just you get into the rhythms or a train i mean it's you know if, you know if people do it with their windshield wipers right you, yeah. feel, you feel it it's a rhythm <laughs> you could do that with anything you know i, I had that but that, that that experience was kind of you know this was when i was in college you know and um i've also had that experience you know i spent a lot of time in the jungle in hawaii and peru and ecuador and and uh, what I love, it's just talk about a symphony of noise and sound. I mean, it can drive people crazy. You know, I love it. It's like, to me, it's like this, you know, this never ending, ever changing symphony, you know, that has certain cycles that repeat over time, but it's like, it's really something else. And I did soothe, that soothes me. And also I do feel like, you know, for me, uh, a lot of what people would consider aleatoric music or contemporary classical music that, you know, has been sort of, uh, I don't want to use the word ruined, but has been taken to a place by a lot of horror movies, you know, because mm-hmm. it's like they've taken, you know, Kubrick did it with a lot of Leggetti and these, you know, mm-hmm. taking this music and putting it to a certain images, it makes it seem like scary music. But in fact, I don't think it's really scary. But a lot of the music, I think for me, that when I, when I have, when music is really, like, really free or atonal or seemingly atonal, I can, there's a part of my brain that I can just let go, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because I don't, I'm not like figuring out what's going on anymore. I'm just like, ah, you know, forget it. I'm just going to let it wash over me. Mm-hmm. So, and that, that, like, I know for some people that's not, they, that doesn't work for them, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sort of, but I love that energy, you know, it's like, I don't know. Did you hear that um, recording, the sonification of the sound of the black hole? No. It's out there. Just, just, just Google it. It's kind of amazing. I listened. I was like, "Oh, this is so cool and kind of weirdly wild and beautiful." But like for a lot of people, it's really scary because yeah. it has this sort of like remind you of like the space sounds from a you know scary sci-fi movie or something because it really is like that. It's like it's an incredible sound. It's like the, you know, I like it's, it's how you choose to listen to something. You know what I mean? Yeah, you gave two kind of pointed examples there. One is like your time in Boston when you're at. NEC and the other is your time in you know the jungle <laughs> and the idea that you that you extracted similar experiences out of living in the not only in an urban environment and hearing the train but also that's a time in your life when you're you're really kind of I think studying music in earnest and and thinking about it maybe in a more traditional sense I don't know I'd love to hear you talk about it and then the other is this journey that you've been on where you've taken yourself into the jungle and and in either case you come out with the same conclusion which is that sound is sound and you can choose to uh, experience it how you how you want to experience it it's all the same to me (laughs) i don't know it's like it's just i i think maybe early at some point i don't know i think i just gravitated toward natural environments yeah i didn't grow up in that although i grew up i grew up in south florida you know and um so there's always the beach and the ocean and the sky down there, which has this epic, you know, I don't know, just into the unknown quality. Like, you know, it's like right there, I live, I live, you know, less than a quarter mile from the ocean. And, and, uh, and well, it's, you know, it was also very, um, 
I guess, humanized, you know, I mean, pavement and it wasn't mm-hmm. like really like living in the woods, like I, but it was, um, but I guess there was that element there, but I guess, but, but I, then I moved up to Boston and I don't know, I just started gravitating to get out of the city to, you know, as soon as I went out to the Berkshires, it was like, Oh man, you know, it's like, I really like spending time out there. And, um, and then, you know, a little later ended up going to Hawaii for the first time. And then Vanessa Meyer Wood went to Hawaii. And I think, and then we would literally go, we'd go out to this place in the jungle with no electricity and with nothing, you know, for two months, it started as two months. And then, you know, eventually it whittled down as we got busier, but you know, it was always, you know, a month, so we are, I think it was like two to three weeks minimum was always the, you know, if you're going to go there, because you got to take a minute to get settled down and get in the group. And I just like, I like to unplug, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, in a way it's, it's more about that for me. Like I like to unplug from all of this. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it's just my constitution, my nervous system. I like, I need to get away from electricity. I've always like, you know, I did I, and I've only been able to realize that in retrospect when I started going to the jungle down in South America. I was just like, well, I, I just sort of, I've somehow managed to make this part of my life for a really long time where I get these, th- these periods, at least a couple of weeks off grid. Mm-hmm. And I, and I like doing that. You know, I like being, um, and I think it, I think it gives me, it's a different kind of study. You know, it's like when you're in a, when they go into going, going to music school and being in Boston, playing a million different gigs with a million different people and different kinds of music. That was for kind of study, you know, um, that's more like an exterior study, absorbing and taking learning about music and different kinds of music and, and, and different theories and rhythms and, um, you know, different approaches to harmony, melody, everything, you know, and then there's the metabolization, you know, which is, Spend time, you know, by my, I mean, I spent two weeks one time in Hawaii alone and I didn't talk to a single, another person. You know, I know people go on these silent retreats, you know, I went, uh, but there's usually other people where I did a like retreat where I didn't, I just stayed in the jungle and I didn't see another person or talk to a person for two weeks and just kind of went deep into myself. And if this, you know, things come up, fear, blah, 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 all these things happen in these situations, you know, and I just like that. I mean, I really, and I think more and more, I like, you know, I live in the woods now. I moved, up, I moved out of New York City in 03 just to be more trees than people, mm-hmm. I guess was what I thought at the time. And, um, but I still, you know, I like going to the city. You know? I always have. And there's a certain excitement there, but I think for me, in terms of, in terms of learning, it's like I learned a lot from mm-hmm. being around Things not created by humans, things humans couldn't create, mm-hmm. you know, like trees and mountains and, you know, things that are like way more like, you know, I, it's just like, I, I don't, I just don't think humans are that clever or that important. You know what I mean? For me, it's like, I just don't, it's like, I'm not, I'm not like amazed. I'm, I'm actually disgusted maybe by what humans <laughs> do and have done, you know? I love, I mean, I love people and I love all life, but it's like, this, you know, part of it's like, I'm not, I'm not like so, oh, impressed with humans. I want to be around some human created environment for me. I've spent a lot of time and I do still, you know, cause I, and I get enough of that with my travels, you know, I get to be in cities, I get to play in cities, I get to experience that. So I think I just learn more mm-hmm. at this point in my life, you know, as I, I'm, you know, I am, you know, 
I'm getting older. <laughs> I'm in the last third of my life at this point, you know, and I really enjoy being, yeah, things around things that have been created by a force far smarter, more intelligent, you know, more, mm-hmm. you know, far seeing than humans. Mm-hmm. And then just, just absorbing that, taking that in, observing it, feeling it, and then having that, you know, somehow influence what I do and who I am. So, you know, you say you're in the last third of your life now, and you're referred to as having been a prodigy, like you started playing music very young. Your relationship with music goes definitely back to the first third of your life. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I mean, there's. I'm not, I, don't, I don't think I was a prodigy. I mean, prodigies. Are, I mean, I played young. Yeah, sure. And I did a lot of stuff, and I loved it. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what a prodigy is. Mozart was a prodigy. So wh- why do you think you are referred to as a prodigy? Who refers to me as a prodigy? I don't know. It's like it's it's one of those things that gets said and then passed around in like yeah, articles and things. Yeah. People say well, he's a prodigy. I started playing really young. I did. I started playing. You know, I started taking studying classical piano. When I was five, and I played. It came certain aspects of it came easily to me, and I did. Yeah, music just kind of sucked me up, you know. But I'll tell you something. That I've realized is like for me, it was like music was. This is we get back into the whole he- circle around to the healing thing is that for me, having music was a great way to deal with all kinds of stuff, to deal with like the hard things in life. I always had that. You know, I could go into my room. I had a piano in my room. I could go in there and just, but shit was not good in whatever way. Man, I could just go play and it would, it would help. Even 10 minutes, you know, like whatever, just sit there, just a, ah, just a quick something, quick five minutes of being creative, making something up. You know, would really just it's like clear, mm-hmm. <laughs> clear things, clear my head. You know? So, um, and I realized that's kind of like why that's what, like what music was for me is what is why I would like to share it with other people. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's because like it was so good for me to have that. I'm so lucky to have had that in my life to help me get through like whatever. I mean. Yeah, diff- I don't want to use the word trauma because I had a really good life, but whatever difficulties I had, whatever I went through, you know, I'm like whatever um, aspects of my existence that were brutal, music really um, helped me, you know, having that in my life. And it wasn't about performing, really, you know, although I did that too, but it was really like what it did for me. Yeah. <laughs> Just it was really amazing. And I think that's like really why I. Like to play music. I want to share that. I want people to have that experience. I want music to be that. I want people to get that from music. And you know, I also like to inspire people to play music too. And I don't think it's never too late to start. You know, so, and I think that's also why I play the music, the kind of music I do, and never really went as commercially as I could have. Like every turn that we could have gone more commercial, we didn't. You know, I think it's because like that's not what gave me the experience. You know, that didn't do it for me. That's not what gave me what I needed. Yeah, it's never been about being famous or, or even making money or it's been about like that, you know, creating music that might help somebody who needs that particular kind of music, <laughs> which is what I needed. When you first started playing, you were playing classical music and at some point you discovered that you could improvise, that there was a way to play improvised music. Well, I'll tell you, I studied classical music, but I, you know, just somehow I always knew that like, Bach and Beethoven and those guys were improvisers. That was just part of my education. You know, I understood that part. That was like a big thing, you know, that you, I guess that people talk about. And then I, I and then I basically I started playing 
songs that my parents knew. My dad played a little piano too, you know, and I just started playing the, the, their songs, which were like basically standards, you know, that, that was their era of music. We call them standards now. And these, these great songs. And, but I would like read them. You know, I learned them. I'd pick up books of Carmen Caballero or Peter Nero or mm-hmm. whoever, Roger Williams. And I would just like learn these arrangements from those kind of um, written out uh, books. And then I heard, um, yeah, I remember my friend's brother, drummer, older than me. He uh, was my best friend at the time. His, uh, and his brother was a drummer and he knew I played and I was in band. I, I played, you know, soon i played a lot of different stuff i played i was involved in music in a lot of ways and then um he played me so he just like had this really cool stereo and, and he was the older kid hanging out so it was, it was it was like kind of a thing for me you know and he started playing me all this stuff like, and one of them was oscar peterson and suddenly i'm hearing these songs that i had learned mm-hmm. from some these other sort of more i don't know good but you know more popular ways and i was like oh man can play it like i mean just it blew my head off and it just that that kind of launched me and you know at the same time he was playing you know he, he was my you know listen to he, i think in the one day he played me oscar miles davis frank zappa chick korea you know tony williams lifetime it was like you know one of these kind of things where it's like all this stuff art flaky you know it's kind of like this slew of here's jazz and it uh kind of blew my head off and i couldn't even tell what they were playing you know i couldn't even, i couldn't even figure out what the note i couldn't hear what even what the notes were i was just like so i remember bringing stuff home and just like putting on headphones and like listening to stuff over and over and over you know and then i was lucky enough to get a teacher and i just started you know discovering improvising you know started learning when i was at like 10 or like 11 i guess i started studying jazz theory and listening to just absorbing as much as I could. You know? So there's the story that also gets told about how Jocko heard you at some point when you were a teenager and you played with him a little bit. Is that true? Yeah, I guess when I was like 16, 15, 16, 16, I was in high school and there was this club called the Musicians Exchange that was like a hanging. Jocko was from Florida. There were a lot of great musicians living down there or that would be down there at different times, you know. I mean, it was actually a really incredible. <laughs> I mean, the music scene in in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Miami, in the seventies was kind of unbelievable, to be honest. But now looking back on it, and um, uh, but yeah, I used to play with this band called Emergency. Was the name of the band, and it was it was actually it was actually the first real foray into electric keyboard. I wanted to be a piano player. I was a piano player. I didn't take anything else seriously, even though I loved to listen to. I listened to all that stuff, Headhunters, Chikori, you know, Chikoria stuff back then, Miles, 70s Miles. I mean, I listened to all that stuff, but I never, I was always going to be a piano player, you know, but I had to get a rose because this place didn't have a piano, so I had a rose. I didn't, it sounded too, I don't know, clean. It wasn't giving me what I was looking for, so I got a couple of pedals to play it through to help, you know, whatever, distort it a little, I guess. And, um, yeah, so I was in this band, and and then Jocko's brother-in-law, Paulie, was in the band. The drummer and so he would when he was in town he would come down and basically take over the second set would play all night you know and he did that quite often and then yeah he would just yeah he was really nice he, you know he'd get like he'd show up like early sometimes or we at one point we did we did a string of gigs at this club in the afternoon they tried these sunday afternoon jazz things where we just played standards hmm. you know? and um i did i don't know five of those with him and then he uh and he was always really nice to me. He was just like, you know, this is sort of at the end, 
yeah, this is definitely after Weather Marine. I was like, when he, you know, he was <laughs> yeah. starting to push his limits a little, you know. And um, and you were a kid. But he, yeah, he was always really nice to me, you know, I got to say. And Barry, and he would sit down and play me all his amazing sit down and play like that, that, was, that incredible, he has such an incredible harmonic, you know, vocabulary, that, you know, his sort of a gospel, you know, bluesy gospel modern, just saying that he'd, make, he'd, he'd ask me to play Beethoven. Let me just play some of that Beethoven. So, and um, yeah, and then he, he did actually ask me to go on tour with him to Japan, but my mom was like, no. So, <laughs> so it didn't happen. It's probably better that way. Man, that's really interesting that you describe as soon as you got your hands on a Rhodes, I mean, even at that early age, you started kind of doctoring the sound. You didn't want to use the pure tone. You wanted to stress it out in some way, distort it, do something to it, which is driving yeah, it further I, away from the piano sound. You know, that it's, it's almost an intentional statement of saying, this is not a piano and I don't want it to pretend to be a piano. Well, I think even then I was hearing something a little more... I don't know. Like I got a tube screamer, you know, which was like a tube pedal that it, 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 you know, it wasn't like a distortion pedal, but it added a little more hair. Just that just needed more hair. It wasn't, you know, it just didn't have the bite that I was looking for from an electric keyboard. I guess mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't. I was just, you know, what I mean, I was a kid, like a young kid. I was just, I wasn't in. I, and I've never been as, as as hard as it is to believe. I've never been like a gear guy. Hmm. <laughs> I'm not one of. The, I've never gone to a NAMM show. I've never. I've never done any, I'm not part of that. I don't, you know, post whatever, me playing whatever on Instagram mm-hmm. and all this stuff. I'm not like really in that world. Like so many people are, you know, I'm just a music guy, you know, and it's like, and I've, co- you know, collected certain keyboards and it's, um, and I just like to, you know, it's really about what is it doing? Do I relate to it? Do I feel it? Do I, can I make something cool? And then I think even back then, like I got the roads and I was kind of like, yeah, uh, so <laughs> I wanted to add, I just wanted a little more air on it because this, you know, the music was kind of high energy and I didn't feel like it was, I don't know. I, I don't really know, but I guess it just wasn't cutting in the way I wanted it to. Like I wanted more bite and who knows. So when you went to Boston, what did you hope for when you went to music school? I was pretty open. You know, I think when I went to music school, I wanted to, I knew, I think I already knew I wanted to be. I mean, then I, I'm not. I didn't. This is definitely not what, how it turned out. I wanted to play. I wanted to be a jazz. I wanted to play jazz of some kind, whatever that meant. I mean, already, you know, by that point, '83, '84, who the hell knew what jazz was? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was there had been this resurgence, you know, with Winton and all that. Right then, I mean, I just, I remember seeing Winton when he was with Blakey in the beginning mm-hmm. in Fort Lauderdale at this club called Bubba's, and it was so great, man. You know, I just remember it was just Winton and Bradford, you know, yeah. with Blakey. You know? Freaking fantastic. But that that spawned this whole weird, I don't even know what, I don't even want to go into it, but it spawned something very weird in jazz. And I, and he had just left Boston. I kind of ended up in Boston right on the, right after that, right after he left. And there were all these young guys trying to be bebop people, you know. And um, for me, that wasn't what it was about. You know, I like, I, I was, I, I had a much, because of where I grew up, I had a much, you know, music was music. And it wasn't like, you know, jazz wasn't people. I mean, jazz, there were so many faces to jazz from what I saw, but I, who am I to say? I'm a white kid from freaking Florida. Mm-hmm. So I never pretended to know anything, but that was a, like my perspective. And so I kind of went with an open mind, I guess, but I, 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 my parents, like, really, you know, they were going to pay for my education, you know, 
whatever, I'm going to get a scholarship and whatever is up. They were going to help me pay for my education. I didn't really even want to go to school. Like back then it was taboo to take a year off. Now, like, you know, yeah. gap year. They even have a name for it, gap year. And um, back then it was like, if you can take a, you know, if you do that, you're never going to go back. So they kind of pushed me to go. And uh, so I went, I basically applied as a classical piano major. Hmm. And I got into Juilliard, Eastman, and the New England Conservatory. And actually, I got into all in Brown. I, just, I applied to whatever. I got into all the schools I applied to. And I, I even got, find, you know, got certain teachers at Julie, like at Juilliard, Eastman. I think, you know, asked for some. And I kind of got what I was looking for at all these places. And I went to visit all the schools. And I, Juilliard was just like, oh, man, it was just so. It's back then. I, mean, I think now it's a whole other beast. It is back then. It was very every you know music as a competitive sport. That was the feeling I got there, and there was no jazz program. Hmm. Although it was in New York City and jazz is everywhere. Yeah, I went Eastman. Also had a Eastman had a really good jazz program. Yeah, but it was out in Rochester, you know, and so somehow Boston kind of won. For me. Like my parents liked the idea of being in Boston better than New York City. And also the New York Conservatory, the, the interweaving of the programs was much more natural, much simpler. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up going to the conservatory. Plus, my dad's family was in Norwood, not far from oh. Boston. But I just kind of ended up there. And my dad had gone to BU. So there was a, so I ended up going to the conservatory. And I was, did a year as a classical major. And then I switched. I started having problems with my hands. And I just ended up... Uh, yeah, changing majors over. We moved over to the third street program, which was also. And at that, to be honest, when I applied there, I didn't even know what that was, or even, I didn't even care what that was. I knew who Gunther Schuler was, and you know, mainly because he produced the Ornette record. I mean, you know, and I'd heard of third street, but it didn't really. But it was, yeah, it was kind of one of those things. that was like perfect timing, perfect everything for me to be able to have that program available, and then to just you know dive into a program where the whole idea was to create your own honest style of music. <laughs> you know what is what is what are the the guides around the third stream program what what is the program well you know it's no longer called the third stream program and it's like at that time it was i mean it was you know it was being run by this incredible piano player named Graham Blake and he um was very advanced like his heart he is i mean his harmonic stuff was so advanced and and he has such a huge broad love and a deep he, you know he's just incredible you know, he's a combination of very intellectual, but also very felt. And he developed this whole program about using ear training. It's all about music as an oral art. And he developed what we can say, I could say, is a very college and graduate level approach to using the ear mm. <laughs> to, to create your music and learn music, which is actually really good for me at that time. I, mean, I really needed that. But I think third, third Stream is really a term that Gunther Schuler came up with which was the combination of jazz and classical mm-hmm. music. But it, by the time I was in the program, it had grown to be a combination of any musics. Mm. You know what I mean? Because it's, suddenly Third Street just became this like, which to me is like really just about personal style, you know? Whatever, you know be, and so it kind of made me really start to think about who I am, and get in touch with like what, what I really love, you know, what, what, you know, what the music's I really love. And, and how do I be sincere about that and not stop trying to be a jazz guy? Yeah, and the school there was so much music. I mean, I, I heard. I mean, I you know, that's the one thing about being in music school. That at the time, the school was very. I don't know the <laughs> the jazz program 
was great, but it was um, definitely the president of the school did not appreciate jazz. Hmm. And it was a weird sort of like keep the jazz in the basement sort of thing. But there was so much going on there. The, you know, the, the big band there was one of the best big bands in the country, the medium rare big band at that time. You know, it, was like it, was, it was kind of the end of an incredible era mm-hmm. at the conservatory. I had so many great teachers, George Russell, Joe Benary, Jimmy Jufri. You know, it was just like Jackie Byard. It was just really like, it was kind of unreal. <laughs> you know, now that looking back on it, yeah. the level of what's going on there. And things were a lot looser in general. So there was a lot of a lot of crosstalk between departments. And yeah, I was really able to just absorb as much as I could. You know, I played a lot, I did a lot of gigging, then, you know, skipped a lot of classes. Yep. <laughs> Went to a lot of concerts, mm-hmm. you know, it was like this that in you know, the time. And it sounds like when you got to New York, on the one hand, you came here right in the heart of the Young Lions, the return to Bebop, guys in suits, you know, all that stuff. But on the other hand, you know, you had the knitting factory and you had the whole downtown scene that was happening. Yeah, when I moved to the city, I moved to the city. Like, I, I mean, I kind of, my first, from Boston, I moved out to the Berkshires. Uh-huh. Moved out of the woods. But then I started coming into the city and I had a place out in the Berkshires. I had a, I had my country home and my apartment in Flatbush for $500 a month combined. 89 Yeah. <laughs> so how about that? And then I guess in 91, I, moved, I really officially moved to the city. And moved to the East Village. And I remember somewhere that I don't know if it was when I was when I was sort of half living in Brooklyn or if it was, but at some point I remember going to a jam session. Um, it might have been at Blue Note or it might have been at Vigiones. Mm-hmm. I don't was there on that block. I remember that much. And I just it was like a turning point for me. Like I went in and I sat, you know, went up and I sat there and like the horn players were. I call it Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> The horn players were like lined up like zombies with their instruments and coming up and playing solos on top of these tunes, not even remotely listening to anything I was playing. And worse of all, not listening to the drummer mm-hmm. is playing this the diarrhea. They've been practicing in their practice room. You know, this, you know, this total, like, you know, ripped off, whatever, you know, it's like, you know, a Steve Grossman lick here, a freaking Brecker lick here you know, half-assed cold train like here, you know, whatever it was. It was just like all derivative shit, you know, and not listening and not listening to the rhythm section. And I was like, this is not jazz, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, for me. And it was really disillusioning. I was like, I do I want to I don't want to do this. I've been lucky enough to play with, you know, musicians that listen, you know. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, I mean when I was in Boston I played with this great drummer Alan Dawson who was like, you know, Tony Williams' teacher and all these like, you know, I I played yeah, I mean, I got to, whatever, you know, working with Bob Moses, I got to play with Dewey Redmond, I got to play with Billy Higgins, I got to play with all these incredible musicians in Boston, and then I go to New York, and all these young guys, are. I was expecting, like, I was expecting something else, mm-hmm. you know, I was expecting the music to feel alive and not dead, so it kind of was a weird thing, and then I discovered the Knitting Factory, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, oh, this is the spirit that I'm looking for, even if whatever the music is, it doesn't matter, this is, like, creative, they're, like, they're actually, you know, looking at each other and playing together, I mean, that, that, you know, that scene is kind of, I think, why I ended up gravitating more towards the downtown scene. Plus, I was living in the East Village. Yeah. I mean, Medesco and I would really spawned much more out of play, my du- duo gigs at the Village Gate, which was definitely a conservative jazz club. But you kind of do whatever you want in that at that place because it was 
almost background music, you know, but not, you know, even though there were people listening, it was, it was half, it was a 50, 50 listening slash bar music. So you can kind of get away with whatever, and, you know, so that's where I guess really the first gigs that we ever did were there. Right. I want you to tell me the story. Cause I, as I understand it, you and Chris were kind of cycling through drummers, bringing different drummers in. Yeah. Well, tell, tell me, I, I, I don't want that's, to tell you what happened. You tell me what happened. That, no, that's what happened. I mean, yeah, we were using, I mean, really great drummers and the music was great, but I had actually met Billy in Boston. We always do. So when I moved to New York, we got, I got together with Billy and played duo. The first time I played with Billy Martin was duo, just me and him. And he had this loft in Dumbo when Dumbo was, no one was living in Dumbo. Mm-hmm. And he had a little, record, little recording set up and we played, you know, duo. And, um, and I used to go see Billy with the Lounge Lizards, and you know he had a band called B. And there's like you know a little scene. I, yeah, we go check him out. I really was something about the way he played. I just really, I don't know. I saw something in it that I felt like I wanted it. You know, it could be a good pairing. You know, and then Chris and I were, would have these duo gigs in the Village Gate, which we would play standards, but we do our own arrangements. And and then finally, Chris and I just went over to Billy's. You know, and uh, played and he recorded it. And literally the first thing we played. Billy started the groove, Chris started a bass line, I started playing. This was on like a digital piano back then. No one and um, I transcribed it and it was, it's, it's uh, Uncle Chubb on our first record, that's mm-hmm. for the underground. Like that was just a transcription of our first improv. Hmm. So the chemistry was kind of <laughs> immediate, you know. When they started having drummers in the village gate, you know, we brought I brought Billy in. Billy came in and did it a couple times. You know, we were still psyching the drummers, but then I don't know. There was just something. Yeah, I think I kind of I kind of made that first recording happen. Yeah, at least the recording part. But Billy it was like it was, again. It was like just just how we collaborated. You know, it was like it was everything was like, everything was instantly clashing. Billy knew got this. He knew David Baker got the engineer in there. You know, and you know some of the horn players were all like downtown guys. You know, and um, Billy knew the studio. So and then when it came time to like you know when it came time to put the record out, it was like Billy used his artwork. It's like some instantly we were sort of creating the whole thing together. And that's basically how it started. You know, that's what we did. We did made that first record, and then we decided to try to start bringing it out there. You know, even in the jazz adjacent world, whatever improvised music space, not jazz, not not jazz, whatever world that you're in, bands are not so common. I mean, in the jam band space, there are bands with names and logos and all that stuff. But in the jazz world, to be a band. I think is a little bit of a novelty. I, I mean, I don't know if that's how it was back then. If you want to go to back then, there yeah. was no jam bands. That didn't even exist. You know, it was like, we're talking 90, not 91. You know, there wasn't a jam band scene. There was no scene. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple bands out there. I found out later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like fish. And, you know, they were out there playing around, but there was no jam band scene. And like, really the paradigm of, and I won't, I'm not won't mention any names, but I have a lot, a lot of musician friends that you know the paradigm in New York at that time was to play with a lot of different groups, yeah. and you land a record deal with one of these bands, and then you make a record, and then you have tour, then you have like yeah. whatever the record company can offer you, and then you're you know, and I got to say, 
just for some reason, I just saw that as like, oh, you know, slave to the record company. And, you know, it's like I saw through the bullshit, really, mm-hmm. of it. And I did, we just had this intuition that, like, I mean, I, my, my theory was that, look, if we can, because, you know, it was impossible to play seven nights a week or even three mm-hmm. nights a week with that band in New York. Yeah. And get to come out enough to make it worth it. But I was like, you know, if we go to different cities, <laughs> we could probably be playing almost every night and just make this, create this circuit. And if we can get 50 people to come out every night, man, we can mm-hmm. make a living. You know, that was really, it was that simple. So we got in the van, we went down there, Billy had some connections. We made connections um, down in like Atlanta. I had a friend in Atlanta and Billy had a girlfriend in North Carolina. We just ended up like starting this, playing this little circuit down there. And I think, you know, one of the first guys we met out of our scene was Colonel Bruce Hampton. Mm-hmm. He came and sat in with us in Knoxville. The, the promoter there said, made, made this happen. And we were like, who is this guy? What are we? He was amazing. He came in and just like, and he, we just hit it off. He loved us. We loved him. You know, his, he's just, you know, he was such a wizard, you know. Back in 1992, we were a good band. We were traveling all over Finland, England. We went over to London, too. We were up and down the Hudson River. We were shedding a lot. We lived in a shed. Yeah, it just sort of then word just started spreading. People like kind of like grew up with it. People had moved to Boston when, you know, from Boston when I did. They all were like, you know, thought we were stupid. Oh, you know, you know that's not how you do it. Yeah. And I was kind of like, are you allowed to swear on this show? As much as you want. Okay. Well, I don't want I, mean, <laughs> I don't want it, but I was just kind of like, fuck you, man. Just, you don't know how, you know, how do you know how it works? That's like how it, maybe that's how it used to work. But like, as far as I'm concerned, the 80s, the whole record business ruined music. Yeah. Know? And like ruined a lot of things. That whole era was just awful. So I'm like, I don't know why we're going to have to live by that kind of skin. I want to get out there. Just, I just want to play. I didn't care about recording records. Mm-hmm. I hated it because the idea of documenting stressed me out, man. I didn't want it, the permanence. Forget it. I hated that. I like the gig. So I like to be in the moment. Music for that moment, in that moment. I didn't want to listen to the recordings, you know. Mm-hmm. Whatever. We made press kits. We did the whole thing. You know, we went down, you know, we had Billy's dad's basement where he printed T-shirts, <laughs> made press kits. You know, the band's first original name was Coltrane's Wig. Why? You know, long story, short story. <laughs> we were just, we were lost for a name. And so we were just, you know, we sort of like feeling out. We asked John Murray for, and that he gave us like a couple of names and that was one of them. And that just cracked. I just felt like it was so irreverent and weird, Coltrane's wig. And sure enough, it really pissed off some jazz club owners. So, and then some, so we, we immediately, and then a year later we changed it. We said, you know, and again, like, this is it. This is at a time when, all bands had weird names, Butthole yeah. Surfers, you know, whatever. And um, cool. And there's a lot of great names back then, too. Sure. But we we're like, there's too many good names. How about we just make it simple? We just made it our names, you know, and then picked a, a symbol to represent us so that you, there could be a visual, you know, because the name was kind of long. And that was kind of it. And that, there was, was before, that was before Prince did his symbol thing, by the way, just to. You were ahead of it. Yeah, I understand. You were. You were. You no. Know. Well, it had nothing to do. With it. It's also for different reasons. But we just like created. A, we knew we needed some visual image. We just, we just did all that stuff back then. You know? 
You know, you said this thing earlier about how every time there was an opportunity to be more commercial in your career or less commercial, you, you, or maybe you didn't choose the less commercial one intentionally, but you, you didn't make decisions based on commercial success. I think that in some ways, the emergence of the jam band scene was a kind of commercial success that came about in spite of the decisions that you made or, you know, in tandem with, in the sense that you did get bundled in with a crew of people that maybe were not. Oh, we still are. I still am, you know. And my mom, my mom always said, don't bite the hand that feeds you. <laughs> so I didn't. But also, like, I really felt like, hey, you know what, you can't pick your audience. I mean, that's the other thing. I guess, I guess for me, you know, just having seen the way record companies and musicians, like, you know, get this concept and then target this thing, it's so calculated. And for me, music has nothing to do with that. I wanted music to be just a part of our lives. You know, we were like a gypsy. We were just, like, traveling around. The, you know, we were traveling in a camper, staying at state parks, like, I don't know. We were like trying to live a good life, like getting to see, you know, see this country in a good way, meet people, have meet friends. We slept on first part of the tour. We slept on people's floors. We got to make good friends. Yeah. We had these, you know, we'd go back and visit them. Like we create, it was like trying to create some kind of real life that wasn't a sacrifice of your life, even though it ultimately ends up being that. But the attempt was like somehow keep some vi life vitality in our touring, you know, and the idea of just targeting an audience. I mean, I, now I can, I kind of understand the value of it because you know it would be nice to pick your audience, but you know. But then you're mm. what, you're, what are you doing? Mm. Are you, you're, I mean, ugh, God. I mean, that's a whole other thing. But that's what's happening right now, right? Like yeah. The whole Instagram, right? everybody's just like you know, pretending to be something or presenting something that will create. Everybody's so hyper aware of what the reaction is going to be and who. It's just so. It just. Uh, it, it's not my universe. So for us, it was really about getting out there. And yeah, we just ended up, you know, and I think it, a lot of it had to do with the band Fish, you know, you know, playing, playing our CD every night on tour before one, on one of their tours, playing it before and people wondering what that is and then getting, because they, you know, you know the, the first influencers, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, because they liked it, everybody started checking it out, you know, and then suddenly, I remember the first time we ended up on this tour it was absolutely unintentionally paralleling their tour around hmm. the country. We didn't know idea. We didn't barely knew who they were, you know, at first. And, um, and yeah, we got to know them and I love them. They're, you know, great, beautiful people. Great. You know, they're great. And, but we didn't know. And, and our tour is kind of paralleling them. We ended up in Madison, Wisconsin, I guess it was a night off. That's where I'm from. Oh, there you go. I love Madison. And I remember, I don't know if it's going to be this, but I remember when you played on the Memorial Union Terrace. Yeah. Basically, there were like, I don't know how many thousand people were there. It was just like, it was really weird to us. Like We didn't, it was like all of a sudden, whoa. And it was like definitely a different looking crowd. That was the first gig where we had this other, this other look, another vibe to the crowd then, up till then. And it was just kind of like, whoa. But it was kind of cool to have that many people there. And then, then somebody explained to us what was going on. <laughs> yeah. We were, okay, it's this, it's this fish parallel thing. And, you know, it's great. I mean, we're appreciative of that. You know? I remember I, I asked Eric Krasno how, how to manage a jam band audience. Like, if there's some, 
you know, unspoken contract you enter into with a jam audience. And he said, one thing is that they don't want you to repeat yourself. Like if you're going to play multiple nights in a row that Soul Live anyway would choose not to play any of the same material, Fish doesn't repeat itself. Yeah. Did you feel that once you inherited this audience that you somehow had to negotiate well, with them? I, see, I think the part that people don't understand is we didn't inherit the audience. We were part of the creation of that audience. I mean, I, I don't want to sound bold, but like Fish was out there doing it and we were doing it in, a, in smaller places. But that was our that was our M.O., like we didn't, we didn't have to look at it and figure out what to do. That's just what we did. Yeah. First of all, we also improvised a lot, so we would just we never played the same <laughs> anything. We never we never played the same set twice ever. I mean, that was already like what we did because for us, we like to keep it changing. You know, it had nothing to do with like that's what you're supposed to do. Is like that's just what we like to do. That's what we did for us. And I think Fish did it too. You know, we did that stuff for us because. It kept it fresh, you know, and, you know, sure, we didn't, sometimes we'd end with this, you know, but we were also weren't afraid to play the same song at the end of the night. Yeah. As an you know what I mean, like, we didn't, it did, that was not a rule for us, but we just, that was kind of just our MO in the beginning, you know, was to like keep it changing, keep it, you know, just, but also to keep it fresh for ourselves. And also the fact that, like, really, we made, did a lot of, you know, spontaneous composing, <laughs> yeah, make em ups every night. That that just would leave it open, and that was the thing. We that was really you know our thing was to start from that space, of nothing, and then let see what you know. It's like you know warming the room up with sound, and then see what wants to come out. And if nothing came out that was completely brand new, then you know find a song that we already knew together. You know, so that was kind of that's yeah. I mean, that was kind of the you know that was an exciting, it was a cool time in the early days. And yeah. then, but then it got to the thing where like you know, and I think this is getting a little, I feel like I'm all over the place here. We're getting back to like what you're talking about, um, not choosing the commercial obvious choice. Is that like there was a certain point where like we'd be playing and we'd be in that freer space, and then some guys out there yelling, "Do something!" That was like really, hmm. ugh. <laughs> That was, and that same guy was in a lot of cases. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, that really was kind of like a thing. It was like, you know, no, you know what? We're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, we're not going to, you know, sure, you, you know, we know you want these little funky jams, but go see somebody else, you know? I think we could have, we could have had a lot more financial success had we done that. Yes. A lot more records. I think the dropper was a big turning point for us. Yes. We made a point, we made a point with the dropper to not. That's why we called it the dropper. What about the A Go Go record with Schofield? Maybe it brought Sco also over to the other side, but it was like, no, we're still, we're still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it brought Sco to the dark side, yeah. <laughs> and it um, gave us a certain credibility. Yes, I mean, it changed our, it changed everything in Europe. I mean, it really did give us a certain credibility that I think that a lot of people were. I mean, yeah, it was a bold move for Sco. I think it was a smart move for him in some ways yeah. too. You know, it was just really good timing for. You know, it was, it was one of these things where it was a really good. Like, it was a good, it was good for all, all around. There was a chemistry there. Like, he, and for him to, like, you know, to do that, like, to take this younger band and, like, 
go on the instinct that there could be something cool from it. You know, it was like, yeah, it was great. And like, you know, we didn't know what would come of it. And I would say in some ways the record, I mean, whatever, it had a life of its own. Yeah. So I, I can't, it was different than I was expecting like before it happened. Hmm. You know, I had heard Sco, I mean, I loved Sco's like, own trio, yeah. you know. And, um, but I had also heard him with Miles and stuff, you know. So I didn't, I was expect. I don't know what I was expecting. But um, the thing is, like really what, what, what happened was something really unique, mm-hmm. you know, and a, a certain chemistry that's just like, like there's no other band like it. Totally. Oh man, I, that's still one of my favorite records. It sounds really good. It's like a great studio, incredible engineer, very detail-oriented mm-hmm. recording, pristine recording. You know, it kind of showed another side of us too. You know what I mean? Well, talk about that. I can't because I have no idea. I just know that it did. I don't know anything about that. I don't really look at music like that. I can't like I can't historically analyze myself musically, you know. But I do know that when we play with other people, you know, different things come out. Yeah. We, especially when we had a fourth member, you know, we had a then because we, I, I, you know, I guess I can say this now. We're good. We're good at accompanying people. <laughs> you know, we're good rhythm section. Yeah. Because we have this chemistry, and we also listen and care, and like, we don't. You know, it's not about, we're not all just sitting around waiting for our solos. You know, mm-hmm. We like to get in there and create, you know, we like to get inside whatever's happening. You know, be ourselves, but also get inside the music. And, and so just go being who he is. He's so strong and so amazing. And, his, you know, rhythm, I mean, just whatever. We, we related in so, we related in a lot of ways. And he has this whole other aspect side of himself that he does this, you know, and, we, and so, you know, so to each of us. We yeah. We control other sides of ourselves. And, but where we meet, you know, like with the common language, the common ground, really created something I think, you know, unique. When you were talking with, about- a, real, with a real chemistry, which I which I haven't really addressed yet on this podcast, but it's like that's like the key to everything is like the chemistry. It's not about like getting guys together that look good on paper. It's mm-hmm. like, is there a chemistry? You know, that's that, that's really what it's about. I mean, and come on, every band we love, <laughs> it's about the chemistry. And you know, then then you grow to appreciate the individual musicians for how they are, but. They're not all, always, not every musician is, you know, it's not about musicians at the highest level coming. It's about mm-hmm. what is created, what chemistry, you know, how do, how do you, how does it, how does it come together? Well, you like to put bands together. I mean, you've got a lot of different projects, right? With Matt Skillet. finding people to put together and it's a it's a part of what you do i do no i like i do but it's interesting like they've all of them have evolved kind of i mean i like there to be some kind of natural evolution and there was hudson too with your neighbors Yeah, well, that was again. That was like Jack. It was his birthday. He wanted to do that. He was his birthday, get, you know, thing. And that kind of, that also evolved into a thing of you know having a life of its own. Yeah, that's true. There's Hudson. 
<laughs> There's an okay, and then I, I do want to ask you about this one because I'm not. I just have spent a little bit of time with it, but I had been hearing about it last year. The Saint Disruption Project, because yeah. that one seems like it's got its roots it literally in the jungle. Well, just that, that Jeff and I met. In, that's where we met in, in Ecuador. In Ecuador, like in a place where you do not meet other people from the United so, States. Like it's not. It's not. It is no way, shape, or there's no website. It's not a. Like it's the only way to find about this is word of mouth by being into this kind of thing. And it's like, what, what is this it, kind of thing? What is this kind it's, of thing? It's, it's, well, it's this tribe. There are these healers down in Ecuador, Sequoia, They're master who, you know, master healers, you know, jungle plant healers who have been doing it the same way for thousands of years. It's like a deep tradition. They were only had first contact 80 years ago, you know? And, but what, and what is jungle plant? Like, is that ayahuasca? What is jungle plant? Well, they have their own stuff. They use yahe, and then they also, you know, using medicinal plants, you know. And you know, it's they just they just you know they're like they're like llamas. They're like they are the llamas of the jungle, and it's like a spiritual thing. They're like deep, but like the, yeah, to me, yeah, it was like you don't see. You, it's like you really don't. It's not. It's definitely not on your like you know, findashaman.com. You know, it's like it's they, they, especially back then, they were you know, and it's and it's not easy to get there. Yeah. You know, and to be at guy Don Cesario's house, this maestro, and to have him come up at the exact same moment, like to this guy's house the same day, it was a trip, you know. And so we've stayed connected ever since then, loosely, you know. And he, he tried to get me involved in some stuff with a DJ that never really came together. I was too busy. And right before the pandemic, he came to me with this one track that kind of, the track with Umar, you know, and it just, the way it came together was again, collaborative you know like he wanted he had this track and he sent me this little score for this piano part and it was you know it was fun but he said if you hear anything please you know and so i did i kind of played his part which is very simple and repetitive they had a very cool like weird drum rhythm track on it that i really liked and so i did what he wanted and then i was like you know what i thought i said to the engineer let you know let's you know, let me do a couple passes. Just, I'm going to play whatever. I'm going to play what I really feel. What I have nothing to lose, you know, right? Mm-hmm. You may hate it. I don't care, <laughs> you know. But, but I'm going to like, see. I'm just, so, and he ended up really loving it and using it, you know. And um, that quite, it started like that. Rainstorms, rainstorms, painstorms. The desert is full of children, dry mouths and parched skins. This poem is about demons. It is not about magic. A tiny drop of water upon their lips. They ride cruise missiles bareback, lollipops and juicy fruits packed in suicide bombs. They are dead on arrival. Because I kind of didn't want to get involved in anything where I can't just be myself 100%. You know, I, yeah. I, you know, I, I can do that. I can fill the... But I have done that a lot on records, you know, but I don't, not a lot, actually. I've been very lucky that way. But um, so it just kind of evolved from there, you know, in that way that we just started, you know, and then I played on the rest of the tracks, mixed one of them. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, we just did this version of Imagine that just came out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, he's definitely, he's spearheading it. Yeah. You know, but I'm there has to be a part of you that is aware that anything you're going to put your name on at this point, it's going to, you know, raise some eyebrows because people are, want to check out whatever you're doing. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't see again. That's what, maybe I should be more calculated. I don't even think about that. 
I just do what I do stuff that I feel like doing. You know? I don't know. Some people are really like, again, that's like, that's where like all these, you know, this whole whatever social media world is so smart. Like they know, you know, they know how to market themselves and what to do when to make the right choice at the right time to do. I can't, I'm just, you know, I'm just put, I just play music, put stuff out. Yeah. You know, Seems to be working. I, mean, I, just put out, I just put out a solo, you know, electronic record on John Zorn's label called Crawl Space that I really love that I put out during the pandemic. This is one of the most aggressive, crazy sonic. And then there's only a lot of, you know, it's, it's very, you know, it's very, there's a lot of written out stuff, but it's like a very, happy. it's just me solo with, you know, playing all my different keyboards. Huh. Um, I just put out this kind of a whole thing. And I, and I got this duo recording right now of all sun raw material with Cornetist Kirk Kanufke. Do you know him? No. He's great. I'm great. Fantastic. And that's that will be working. You know, we just finished mixing it and put that out sometime soon. So I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't. I guess I don't really have a. <laughs> I don't have a a strategy. Out. I don't have a. Yeah, I don't have a. That's the word. I do not have a strategy. Exactly. Well, thank you for sharing whatever this lack of strategy was with me, man. I it's. I'm so glad that uh, I didn't cancel just due to a couple stitches in the toe this morning. Yeah, sorry about your toe. That was weird. It was really weird. John, thanks so much, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great. Take care. Thanks, John. All right. Bye-bye. Brad Jaffe, there he was. John (laughs) Modeski. Love you, buddy. Talk to you later. Talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.